There are two outstanding musical features of Wagner's Tristan und Isolde that just about anybody with any familiarity with Western classical music knows. The first is the so-called Tristan chord, probably the most discussed single chord in all music. It's partly the sound of that chord, and partly its scoring, particularly the use of pungent oboes, that makes it come as a jab of exquisite pain in the midst of the opera's opening motif, after the cello's great unaccompanied sigh. Everything that needs to be said about tragic desire and the still more tragic knowledge of where it must all end seems to be summed up in these first breathtaking three bars. The other outstanding feature of Tristan is its climax, Isolde's so-called Liebestod, which is a very difficult word to translate exactly. It could mean love's death, but is that death in love or even death of love? In many operas, the death of the hero or the heroine turns out to be the goal of the story, but here it's also superbly brought about musically. As Isolde falls lifeless before the body of her lover Tristan, we hear that aching desire motif, again the pungent oboe colouring. Now, however, it falls, like Isolde, blissfully into a harmonic resolution, a warmly scored chord of B major. Between those two moments, however, the first sounding of the dissonance and its glorious resolution, comes nearly four hours of music. The way Wagner manages to sustain the tension of that original motive without ever quite resolving it, while at the same time preventing the listener from giving up in total frustration, it's one of the greatest feats of engineering, you might say, in music. In fact, Wagner makes the frustration of the desire for fulfilment or release a major dramatic element in the plot and its accompanying music. 
The lovers realise their love for each other at the end of Act One, just as Tristan's ship is arriving in harbour. Tristan is supposedly bringing Isolde as the bride for his master, King Marker. They must quickly separate. In Act Two, the lovers take advantage of Marker's absence – he's off on a nocturnal hunt – to come together in the bliss of night. There's a long build-up, gradually morphing with the music later associated with Isolde's Liebestod. The voices intertwine luxuriously, blissfully. We expect a moment of orgasmic release, and then... Never has Coitus Interruptus been depicted with such agonising power. But it's very important not to interpret all this simply in terms of physical urges, of sexual frustration and eventual fulfilment. Act 3 is the domain in which desire is seen in not just physical, but emotional, even basic existential terms. As we've heard, at the end of Act Two, Tristan is mortally wounded. Since then, his loyal companion, Courvenal, has conveyed Tristan to his ancient family stronghold in Brittany, Cariol. That's across the sea from Marcus Cornwall, where Isolde apparently remains. Act Three begins with a powerful reworking of the opera's original desire-laden motif. It's now tonalised, you might say, in the key of F minor. But rationalising that motive tonally brings no relief. That figure repeats like the rise and fall of a heavy leaden sea, or the breath of a troubled sleeper, like Tristan himself still deep in a coma. Uh, lower strings keep repeating that figure. It reminds me of Matthew Arnold's line in Dover Beach about the cadence slow, bringing in the eternal note of sadness. Above that, the violins rise like an eye scanning an empty sea and then looking up into the bleak sky. It's a perfect illustration of the shepherd's words soon after, Ert und leer das Meer, desolate and empty the sea the sea that separates Tristan and Isolde. The shepherd introduces himself musically with a long, melancholy solo for corps anglais. It's harmonically restless and ambiguous, like so many of the ideas in Tristan. In fact, it echoes the seminal Tristan dissonance in its sinuous chromatic contours. But also, like that sad string cadence at the beginning of the act, it feels timeless. Rhythmically, it floats free of any measured beat, while at the same time it defies all the classic rules of dissonance and resolution.
The mood of desolation and emptiness goes far further than coitus interruptus, as I suggested that the climactic dissonance of Act Two might be interpreted. Tristan's own family home is revealed as a place of desolation. There are strong echoes here dramatically, and more subtly in music, of the work that made a life-changing impact on the teenage Wagner. That's Beethoven's Fidelio. Fidelio's second act begins with the prisoner Florestan, alone in darkness, crying out in profound spiritual agony, and in the same key, F minor. In Fidelio, Florestan is comforted, then raised to almost ecstatic hope by the thought of his faithful wife Leonora, but then reality reclaims him, and he sinks back into desolation and darkness. We find many similar figures in Wagner's operas, men alone in darkness, crying out in real or spiritual pain for some blessed redeemer, from the cursed flying Dutchman to Amfortas in Parsifal, whose wound horrifically refuses to heal. All of them, in some way, are kinsmen of Beethoven's Florestan. But here, in Act Three of Tristan and Isolde, Wagner stretches out Tristan's agony over a vast tract of time. And Beethoven's circular pattern, despair, consolation, hope, then plunge back into despair, is repeated in Tristan like a recurring cycle, like that eternal note of sadness heard at the beginning of Act Three. First, as Tristan awakes, the presence of his friend Courvenal seems to give him strength. Here you can be well again, says Courvenal. Do you think so, says Tristan wearily, and the eternal sadness figure stirs heavily in the bass. The cycle of hope and then return to despair becomes increasingly cruel. Tristan seems to rally as he imagines Isolde in the kingdom of the sun, and he wills her to join him in his darkness. But hope turns to rage and agony. Tristan curses the day that brings illusory hope and falls back into his dark night of the soul. Extinction of cruel, delusory day is the only hope for both lovers. Only in the eternal night of death can they be truly united. And back again comes that deep, sad string cadence. Again, Tristan rallies. In his delirium, he convinces himself that he sees a ship coming across the sea, bearing Isolde, guided by love. Es not, es not, it nears, it nears, he cries. Corvenal, cease to es nicht. Corvenal, can you not see it? But Corvenal doesn't have to answer. Wagner's music, and in particular that shepherd's pipe, does it for him, devastatingly.
A lot has been written, and justly, about how Wagner extended Western music's harmonic language in Tristan and Isolde, enhancing chromaticism, delaying the resolution of dissonance until the listener begins to wonder if resolution is possible at all. But just as astonishing and new here is the way Wagner manipulates, plays with time. Tristan rallies, reaches out feverishly for illusory hopes, yet the music returns constantly to the spirit of the Act Three prelude and the string's cadence of eternal sadness, the rise and fall of that desolate sea, and the shepherd's time-defying melody. Wagner is too subtle a composer to bring these back literally every time. Sometimes he hints at them, sometimes he morphs motives with ideas from earlier in the opera. Yet every time we return to the key of F minor and the mood of desolation associated with it, we do so with a kind of sinking feeling. But there does at last come a turning point, well into Act Three, and as so often with Wagner, it's expertly prepared. Tristan calms gradually. Again he talks of Isolde sailing towards him. And now, given what follows, it begins to seem less like delusion more like a profound intuition. There's a lovely moment when four horns recall a key motive, and then the whole melody from the Act II love duet, as Tristan himself seems to grasp first a detail, just an element of memory, and then the whole thing. Has Tristan truly intuited something? Offstage, the shepherd's pipe, or in some recordings replaced by something closer to an alphorn, excitedly announces a ship. The music grows out of Tristan's feverish phrases, as though his desire has brought Isolde to him. Crazily, You can hear it not just in the harmonies, but in the rhythms, as five beats in a bar become four, then three, then two, and then Isolde finally bursts onto the stage. Licht, die Leute. 
Again, as at that catastrophic interruptus discord in Act Two, Wagner has prepared a breathtaking reversal, though now it comes as a moment of intense hush. For a brief moment, the lovers look into each other's eyes, mouth each other's names to a phrase from the prelude, and then Tristan dies, as indeed the cello line accompanying him dies, and Isolde mutters simply a hushed ha. The next few minutes are as full of action as Act Three earlier on has been empty of it. A second ship arrives, bringing King Marker and the treacherous Melot, the man who trapped the lovers and fatally wounded Tristan. Faithful Courvenel kills Melot, but in the struggle he himself is killed. Then Marker arrives, already intent on forgiving Tristan and Isolde, yet the scene that greets him raises him to new heights of anguish. A downward plunging and upward straining motif on strings registers his own torment with terrible power. Somehow, however, in all this activity, Wagner manages to convey the sense that, in a way, it's all peripheral. Isolde seems unconscious of everything but Tristan, and as she finds voice again, we sense that it is for her to resolve the opera's tragic dissonance and end the torment of the eternal sadness cycle of time that's been portrayed so devastatingly for us in Act Three. Caring nothing for the world, she loses herself in song, and finally the great, long-delayed resolution happens, like an immense wave finally breaking. One can argue endlessly about Wagner's metaphysical message here. 
the illusory nature of day-to-day -day existence, the suggestion that truth can only be found in night and dreams. The question that Wagner raises is fulfilment of desire to be found in renunciation of bodily urges or in some act of tremendous sublimation, an orgasm not just of the body but of the whole spirit. Yet somehow, when Wagner's music sounds, such questions seem somehow irrelevant to the music, the soul, the sea's unstoppable current, like the action we've just witnessed in the opera's supposed dramatic denouement. Wagner's resolution may perhaps be perplexing to analytic minds, yet to the emotions, the body, it speaks with devastating directness. <laughs> 